Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Bridie Lee Kennedy, who was a colleague, I guess, a collaborator at Sydney University as I was coming up through the comedy scene. And we have reconnected in recent years, which is delightful. It's one of the nicer things in life is is reconnecting with old friends. We we grew apart while I was away uh, in England at university and, and uh, then Bridie moved over to the UK when I moved back to Australia. So we sort of ship, ships passed in the night and we've been trying to catch up for a while and I am very glad to have her on the podcast. Thank you everybody who has been emailing alicerfraser at gmail.com. Thank you everyone in Australia who's been watching The Resistance on iView and saying lovely things. If you can't support me on Patreon, I wanted to say thank you to all of my Patreon subscribers. It's just an incredible uh, thing that you're doing for this podcast and for me it makes me more capable of making art. Anyway, I just wanted to say thank you to my Patreon subscribers but for anyone who can't subscribe there are other ways which you can support the podcast. You can leave a a five-star review on iTunes, you can tell a friend who you think would like this show or you can send me an email alicerfraser at gmail.com. For those of you who don't know what this podcast is, uh, I've had a little spike of listeners recently, I think probably due to the uh, resistance going up on the ABC. It's uh, it's a podcast where I ask people around to have difficult conversations or talk about things that they're wrestling with. What I like to think of as maybe a fourth date conversation. I'm not interested in where you went to school or your upbringing or your favourite colour. I'm interested in what you think. So it's not a necessarily a traditional interview show. It's not f- funny, nor is it meant to be. It's it's just a sort of a a, f- a fun, friendly wrestle over tea. I think tea is a a magical sort of relaxing beverage where you can look a friend in the eye and go, oh, I don't know if I agree with you about that. Tell me more. So that's what this is. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoy making it. Uh, if you don't, well, then I mean you're you're a free human being. Uh, but thank you for making it this far. So that's about it. You can uh, tweet me at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. I will have shows at the Adelaide Fringe Festival in the next month. And then after that, I will be at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. After that, the Sydney Comedy Festival and then the Perth Comedy Festival. So if you are in Australia in any of those places, come watch me. After that, I'm going to go to Edinburgh and do the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So that's my sort of vague itinerary. I have other gigs, but I tend not to plug them very heavily here. If you want to know what I'm doing sort of tonight, uh, Twitter is the place for that alliterative. Thank you so much for listening. Without further ado, I will let you get on with listening to my conversation with Bridie, which I found fascinating. You're having tea with Alice. I will introduce my guest or I'll let her introduce herself. Well, who are you and what are you drinking? Um, my name is Bridie Lee Kennedy. I am drinking like, um, it's like a black tea with caramel sort of thing. It tastes like black tea, but dessert. It's delicious. And milk. Um, yeah, it's really yummy. I feel like I'm having like a little treat, but I can't really drink hot chocolates anymore. Oh no, why not? Like, so... I feel like I'm becoming my mother as I say this, but like as I've got older, I'm much worse at handling really sweet things. Oh. Um, I really top out on sweet stuff. Like you've got chocolates here that are like dark and have like 
ginger or chili in them and I'm really into that. But when I eat stuff that's really, really sweet now, I just can't really cope with it. And I tried to drink a hot chocolate recently and it was nice, but I got halfway through and was like, mm, I'm done. Whereas like if you give me like pizza or something, I can eat it eternally. Remember when you were a kid and parents would say things like that? I don't have a sweet mm. tooth and it seemed so incredibly impossible to conceive that that was real, that you thought they must be lying. Yeah, I was like, yeah, but actually you're just being like a good mother and giving me the cake though, right? But like, yeah, I didn't, I, I, it's genuinely true. And like my partner has such a sweet tooth. And so he said recently that like if if people were just going to sum each of us up in like a single like item of food for me it would be a chili like a really hot chili and for him it would just be like a sugar cube or something <laughs> like I think for him it would actually be a piece of pasta but um but yeah like I I just whenever we go out out to eat I will always order like three entrees and a main or something and he'll get like a main and like multiple desserts then I'll <laughs> pretend that some of the entrees are for him he'll pretend some of the desserts <laughs> for me that sounds like a really mutually supportive couple yeah it's like a Jack Spratt situation <laughs> I like that have you been wrestling with any ideas recently um yeah I I so I read a really good article um on Jezebel I must have been a couple of weeks ago now about becoming ugly. Oh, and yeah, I think I came across that one. It was really, really good. And it was the idea of, like, as a woman, there's, like, a certain act of rebellion or a revolutionary act in no longer um, making yourself appealing to the outside world, particularly to men. And I was reading about it and sort of thinking about it a lot because um, I'm – like it's in the last like year or so I've had to get glasses um but I'm very happy with my glasses I really like them they're very stylish um, thank you um but I've had to get glasses and my uh and I've put on some weight um and my hair is like going prematurely gray which it already <laughs> was but I was like really anxious about it before and there's been all sorts of stuff that I I would I was getting like worried about and I realized that actually I was convincing myself to have that anxiety, that idea of like, oh, no, I've put on some weight and I've had to get glasses and stuff like, oh, I'm going to be less appealing. And when I got right down to it, I didn't feel less appealing. And I also didn't care. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, thinking about the kind of as a kid, um, you watch movies and things and you don't really understand what sex is but you understand that sexiness is a kind of power mm. you know very young girls become sexualized early but it's not because they understand sex it's because they know that there is there's something there that is appealing or powerful or mm. and and i think it becomes a, a proxy for power in a way that it shouldn't you know in the way it, like having a lot of cars for a guy indicates power or, or wealth or you know what i mean yeah. and i'm not articulating this well but but if you do if you have power or if you or, or happiness mm. why do you need sexiness as a proxy for that yeah and i think like i well you i was like 17 when you and i met yes um and I, so i was like fresh out of high school and i was someone who was definitely like 
I was sexualized earlier than um, basically when I was like 12, I ov- almost overnight grew like double D boobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then in they just got bigger and the rest of me stayed like relatively small. Um, and as a teenager, I was massively sexualized by like adult men. And it was like I grew boobs and all of the synapses in their brain misfired and went, ah, clearly an adult, which is giving them too much credit. Actually, what they thought was, ah, I don't care. I'm a creep. (laughs) Um, But um, so I remember like I lost my virginity when I was like uh, just 15. Which is illegal. Um, Yeah. Don't arrest me. (laughs) Um, Well, not illegal for you per se, I don't think. um, No. And I should say that was my like male to female virginity because I hooked up with like slept with girls as well um but that always felt like it happened slightly more organically than it did with men um but actually I when I did that like I did not enjoy sex I also didn't enjoy any of the things that went around sex I didn't enjoy foreplay I didn't enjoy any of it I mean foreplay when you're a teenager is kind of a lie but (laughs) um I didn't enjoy any of that. It's and just yet, Nintendo pressing all the buttons, hoping something works. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Mash, mashing yeah. your thumbs down somewhere. Gold coins falling from the sky. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I I sort of... Oh, speaking of that, this is a complete tangent. No, Sometimes I'll, if I don't have pockets on an outfit, I'll stash coins in my bra. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then occasionally yeah, you will pay out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have had more than one occasion where I've like taken my bra off and multiple things have fallen out there because like I put stuff in there, especially if I'm drinking throughout the night. I'm just like, mm, I'll just keep stashing things. I yeah, need we don't here. get a breast pocket. So we just use our breasts yeah, as pockets. Exactly. It's um, it's a natural advantage. Sorry. Continue. Um, yeah. But basically it was weird because I think I started having sex because the world told me I was a sexual being. But actually... I didn't enjoy sex because I wasn't, I was doing it because I was like, ma, yes, I am sexual and people would like to see my body. And so that's what I'm going to do. And I, I don't think I started like properly enjoying sex in, until I was in my 20s. Like there were times where I liked it more and less. Mm. And um, and I had a very nice male partner while I was at uni. He was a very nice guy and everything. And I was like, oh, yes, this is good sex. This is fine. But actually I wasn't. I don't think I became like a sexual, I was like a sex object before I was a sexual being. Yeah. And it's quite weird that now I'm like, (laughs) like, it's so odd that I, so much of my identity was tied up in that. And I, I still, it just isn't a priority for me anymore. And the weirdest thing is that because I was, well, because I am, like queer but for a long time I only got asked out by men and I would occasionally ask women out and it would sort of not really go anywhere or whatever and the second like you know I'd say a couple of years ago now that I started or like a few years ago I would I started like letting go of the self-consciously sexy side of me Mm. more great women started liking me (laughs) (laughs) yeah well I think partly because so much of our idea of sexiness is that appealing to men. It's deliberately geared for a particular taste. And it's not that women wouldn't find that attractive, but that it's almost that you're, the language that you're speaking with your self-presentation is saying, this is my target audience. Mm. It's like if you were 
Daniel Kitson, but you had a Mac- Michael McIntyre poster. Yeah. You'd be pulling in the, not necessarily the audience, even though the thing that you were it hadn't changed in any way. The, the, your, your publicity was maybe uh, needed fine tuning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, you had a ba- bad PR agent, right? I did. And my PR agent was, I guess, my breasts. <laughs> yeah, your PR agent was your boobs. And your boobs were saying, hey, guys, you know what you'd be great for? You'd be great for a chat show. And you're like, yeah. oh, I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> Really more of an underwatched kind of web series. Yeah, put me on HBO. And your <laughs> yeah. manager's like, no, 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 sweetheart. I know exactly what's going to be. No, please, can I just audition for the HBO thing? I think it'd be really good. You're such a good friend. I was like, I'm more of an underwritten web series. And you're like, HBO. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got glamorous glasses, I reckon. Yeah, that's true. I've got an HBO look now. Well, um, you, uh, you have to remember, I've, I've seen your comedy from the beginning of your comedy. That's true, because when I first left school, I didn't want to do comedy at all. I was like, I'm either going to be Australia's first prime minister, which, thanks, Julia Gillard, way to (laughs) beat me to the punch, Um, or I wanted to Yeah, you could have been the Baron Atheist. Sorry? You could have been the Baron Atheist. If only. (laughs) Um, Yeah, or I wanted to be like a Shakespearean actor. They were like my two career paths, and it turned out that I... um, was better at comedy than either compromising as you have to as a politician or um working hard which I would have had to do if I was an actor I think not only do you have to work hard as an actor you also have to be very good at a particular kind of real life acting Mm. where everything's great and you're open to everything and you're also maybe you're always asking someone else to pick you up and turn you into their vessel yeah there's I feel I I mean as as a comedian you know there is a lot of asking other people to give you opportunities but it's you're you and you get to decide what you say and you don't you don't compromise I think also just like I I think I ended up what I've ended up doing and I think actually this is probably tied into the whole body thing is like I'm I make my living now as a comedy writer um, which, by the way, when I was 17, I did not know was a job that was available to me, yeah. especially in Australia. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was absolutely not on the spectrum. No, like now that I live in London, I'm like, like, I've got a writing agent. If you had told me at 17 that such a thing existed, I would have been like, what is this mythical world and how can you take me there? Um, London is not very mythical today. It's really cold and quite damp. Um but yeah, I but think isn't that what London's meant to be? I remember the first time I came here and it was drizzling and I was like, oh, it's like in the books. Yeah, it's so romantic for like a day. <laughs> <laughs> and then your feet are wet. Yeah, then your feet are always wet. Um, but yeah, I, I just think I didn't know. Like, I think I also sort of thought I was more suited to performance. But it turns out one of the things about performance that I'm not suited to is waiting like if you are writing your own work there's a whole variety of ways of putting that on and whether you're in it or other people are in it or at the moment one with one of the things I do animated characters are in it or whatever like you can create that and I think as a performer you're constantly waiting and you have to be very um willing to do that and I think I just wasn't I mean I've always had a bit of I mean I used to be like quite a workaholic with comedy and I would say I'm definitely much more chilled out about it now 
Um, but that's because I think you've got to hustle when you start. Like you've really yeah. got to hustle a lot. And I think I've lost some of my hustle, which is probably bad. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, it w I became a workaholic with comedy by virtue of starting off not very good at it. And so I was impatient to get through being bad. How dare you? Our <laughs> university improv team. Sex face? Face, face cake. Cake face? Was it sex face? And then we'd go like that. And was then I on that one? Yeah, I think you were. Because I, I, I pretty was on much the cake remember one. that. Mm. Yeah, there was a cake one as well. Then I was on another one, maybe with you, that was like the following guys have slept with your mom. Yeah, no, that's what I meant. By, yeah, so the sex face was what the face we did. Yeah. As we came <laughs> up. Yeah, the following people have slept with your mom. Yeah. That was. Um, so oh, I'm sorry to Alice's goals. listeners, but. <laughs> Oh, God. We made some missteps early on for sure. But I see that's weird because like you're what, you're a couple of years older than me? You yeah. were you were I was eighteen, so when we met. So yeah. You were seventeen, yeah. Um so I remembered you as like already being competent at comedy. Oh, I really wasn't. Because I was just like, wow. Because you must have been in like second year or something, yeah. uni, and I was like, Wow, all of these people can do stuff. And I was like... Yeah, that was one of the big realisations of my life was that the people who you think of as competent, it's mainly just because of their position relative to you mm -hmm. rather than because of their absolute competence. And I had such... I mean, it's a, a thing that's held me back in my life. I had such hero worship for those, you know, the people who were above us. I mean, they invited that hero worship. <laughs> yeah, they they did. They deliberately cultivated it for purposes of their own, which may or may not, not have involved sleeping with a lot of first years. But uh, yeah, I believed uh, them. Improv comedy. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I don't know. I don't want to get you know psycho and analytical on myself, but I think because my dad was such a good dad, mm. I really sort of trusted figures of authority for a little bit longer than you would think given that I questioned most other things yeah I think I see I think one of the areas that I ran into trouble when I started out in comedy was my resistance to kissing the ring <laughs> like yes. I I um it's not a paying your dues thing I think I did pay my dues yeah. um a lot and my like bank account for a number of years can confirm that I was quite literally paying my dues. Yes. I had no money and um, I worked really hard and all sorts of stuff. So I'm very willing to pay my dues. I was not willing to kiss the ring in, in the same way. And I just think like I, there, when I first started out, I was like, oh, wow, all of these people can do stuff. But then quite quickly, I was like, yeah, I mean, but they're only like, 19 like they don't they're not necessarily decades smarter than me and yet they're behaving like they are and it just yeah. really rubbed me the wrong way and I don't know I've got two older brothers who are like five and ten years older than me and I think particularly the one who's 10 years older than me weirdly has I think considered me an equal for like a really long time mm. and probably when I was 17 he was 27 we were like already in that dynamic and so I think I was quite weirdly resistant to being and again it's not like I, I was only resistant to that with people that I felt were deliberately unhelpful yeah like yeah. there are people who are like oh yeah you're just starting out that's so cool and what they mean is like just so you know I'm untouchable and I'm better than you and I'm not going to give you the tools to get better yourself and then there are people who are like oh you're just starting out look let's have a chat I was starting out myself one day and those are the great people and I'm still friends with those people yeah but, you know like 
Yeah, I think my, I was very I was lucky in my life in that I couldn't fit in if I tried. So uh, I managed to sort of avoid what happens with those people, which is that they fold in a little court under themselves and end up rising up on the shoulders of other people. Mm. But certainly in, at Sydney University, there was a there was a thing that that people would do where you could earn your way into their into their group by being the butt of their jokes for a while. Yeah. And I was just I wasn't not, really into that. No. <laughs> I never I never particularly <laughs> felt that was my calling. I don't know if you remember that we I mean, I'm sure you can remember the show, but we were in a we were in a show together um way back when and uh there was again there was a, there was a running gag about the fact that I had big boobs in that cast. Oh, yeah. And... Oh, yeah. And I was, like, maybe 20, 19 or 20, and if I could go, like... I I swear, if I could give my teenage self and, in fact, any young woman any piece of advice, it would be, like, you don't have to be polite to men who are rude to you. Yeah. You don't have to be. Like we're to- we're told to be so polite. It's well, like Yeah, because the threat is, you know, there's always a threat of what they could do to you particularly if they're in a position of power and men really resent being made to feel, you know, humiliated or ashamed or diminished or emasculated or mm-hmm. uh, you know, particularly if it's a sexual comment then by telling them that it's inappropriate, you're telling them that their that their masculinity isn't powerful enough to uh, I mean it's it's one of the n- one of the things that I've been thinking about recently and it's sort of un-PC to say so mm. but it's data is that the one thing that's most correlated with lower rates of sexual assault among teenage girls is assertiveness training Yeah, and because the current narrative and for good reason is don't put it on the girls put it on the guys which is I think an entirely reasonable line to take it, it's unpopular to say it but if you teach a girl to go no rather than oh sorry you give her a whole different set of tools yeah and I think in terms of like the narrative saying we should put it on men not women I think that's 100% true and that's also exactly what we should do but I think that the assertiveness thing isn't even just helpful with issues of consent like it's helpful in every possible way and um and I think like for me, it's quite weird because, like, I went I went to an all-girls school and uh, I loved being at an all-girls school. Um, and, you know, I, I dated girls within my school and dated guys outside of my school. And I was, you know, it was a very – so I was still spending a lot of time with all genders. Mm-hmm. But, like, yeah, I was at an all-girls school and so I was never made to feel in my high school years as though um, – when I got as though like the world was going to treat me as lesser than because I was a woman. I also have two very feminist parents. Like my dad has actively referred to himself as a feminist since like the seventies. So like, you know, um, my brothers were very supportive. There was nothing in my upbringing or my schooling that prepared me for the fact that when I got out of school, I was going to be treated as lesser than. And it was very insidious, especially you know, we were we hung out with people and I hung out with people who were definitely would consider themselves liberal and left wing and everything. And it took me a long time to name what was happening and the fact that it was, you know, it's 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 sexism and it's taking advantage of women's um, societally 
created need for approval and need to be um, appealing and gentle and like that's all expected of us and it took me a long time to name that because and I've talked about this with like my current my flatmate is um she also was like in single sex education and uh, she said she had the exact same experience that like she got into the professional world and was like why are these men talking down to me all the time because it just hasn't been part of her experience um, I don't know if that means that like co-ed education is better because girls will girls will find out earlier that men are awful in some ways <laughs> or, <laughs> or do you want to just like protect them for as long as possible but it's like they always say you know um, girls benefit from single sex education and boys benefit from co-ed like that's what studies show yeah. um, and that makes a lot of sense to me yeah I think it is more I, I, I mean I don't there's no I have no proof of this but sort of intuitively I would I would say it's like having a clean house when you're growing up even if you're not being asked to clean when you move out and you are then in your own place, you'll think that it should be clean and so yeah. you'll keep it clean. You know, I, I think that that's... Or alternatively, you'll collapse into a pile of filth, which I think is, are the two things that happen to uh, this kind of... You, you and I who were brought up in, you know, Sydney Girls High School, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> women can rule the world sort of stuff and then coming out and realising that that's not the case. Yeah. Uh, I think partly also because I had a twin brother... I didn't really have a sense of myself as gendered mm. for a long time. The difference between us was just Henry was Henry and I was me. So it was, even though, you know, I have feminine characteristics and he has masculine characteristics, I never thought of those things as part of our gender. I thought it was yeah. part of our personality. And so I, it was a less of, of a barrier for me with something like comedy because I didn't think, oh, I want to be like... And then desperately looking for some woman who I could be like. I, mm. I was like, I want to be like the Monty Python boys. And I could yeah. see no reason why I would not be. And then you get on the stage and you realise that you can't make that kind of joke. People won't laugh at this kind of joke. I can't be awkward on stage. You know, there's a real trend for that kind of Napoleon Dynamite, ooh, awkward comedy yeah. when we were coming. I can't do that because people go feel sorry for you. Yeah, isn't that weird? I find the awkwardness thing so weird because, like, everyone – so – in movies, they love having, like, the awkward girl, but she's always, like, either so awkward that she's, it's like, what a weirdo, or she's the awkward girl who's actually very cute. Like, she's awkward in a cute way, and she says the wrong thing sometimes, and, like, you know, she's got great glasses, probably a lot like the ones I'm wearing now. Um, but, like, there's that awkward trope. But in real life, people find awkward women, like, awkward women don't, get hired for jobs that awkward men get hired for like I work in comedy I work in writers rooms which are overwhelmingly male obviously and there are a lot of like I absolutely love all of my colleagues but a lot of them are awkward dudes there's not a single woman who comes through that door who doesn't have like I have a degree of confidence and social skills that is not expected of my colleagues and bless them the ones I'm working with now are just amazing and pretty much across the board have <laughs> the social skills required um to be comfortable uh, to be around but there's actually not expected it's like oh he's a weirdo but he's a real genius but like with women we don't get that opportunity you can't be the weird genius because you'll make people uncomfortable Actually, strangely enough, the most the most recent Jump Street, twenty three Jump Street, or twenty. There's a twenty three Jump Street. Twenty two Jump Street. The second one with Channing Tatum, yeah, whichever one that was. The villain character in that was just a delightfully. Who's the villain? 
She's, I mean, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, the 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 girl in the pink dress who's the flatmate, who's the roommate of the, the one who gets killed. Um, and she's just aggressive and unyielding. And there must be one I've not seen. Slightly on the spectrum. And it's yeah. just a, she's just a, a good character. Yeah. And she would be a good character if she was a boy. And my sense is that... It was a kind of a gender-blind casting mm. or that they had to have a girl in that role because the, the girl who gets killed is a girl and so her roommate must necessarily be a girl. Yeah. But... Yeah. Have you watched any of either Awkward Black Girl or Insecure? Yes. Yeah. So... It's fantastic. Issa Rae is, like, I think, like, the best writer on TV at the moment. I can't really think of anyone doing what she's doing um and insecure is incredible that's her hbo show but like awkward black girl her web series is so good and like i'm here being like oh no one ever wanted to see me be awkward but like the idea of like an awkward black girl is even less seen on television like they don't even you know black women don't even get to be or like women of color generally don't like there's like a big stereotyping of asian women as like the awkward nerds which is also like shit Mm. but then like you know women of color generally have to fit into certain stereotypes and awkward is not one for american black women and then she does this web series that is just so funny and really fits within that over of that like awkward lead character that everyone sort of has to deal with around them and yet it's it's done by someone unexpected and i just think what she's done with that web series and now her show is so specific and so interesting and it really like I think her character in the show is in the HBO show is like more together than the one in the web series but it's still uncomfortable to watch sometimes in like the best possible way um and really made me think about the way I'm writing female characters in my own projects (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's it's always that it's that thing of of you get slightly bored about talking of these over talking about these subjects, but then it's it's we're always reacting mm. to a thing that is boring to us already. I re- I genuinely remember in, I think in the show that we were in together, or maybe the year before, I presented a script to our director, who's a lovely man, and at that time was developing his feminism. <laughs> it was. <laughs> <laughs> I presented him a sketch with uh, two characters, yeah. one of which was a girl, in which th- the man was the straight man, the straight character. And he said it wasn't funny and it was girl humour. And I went home and did a find replace on the names and gave it to him the next day. And he said, this is much better. <laughs> and I said, I have literally just switched the names. Yes, because boy humor doesn't exist, of course. That's just humor. That's, yeah, that's just, just the humor. default. That's just default. But he was so shocked. And he was like, no, 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 you've changed it. You've punched it up. And I said, I have done nothing but switch the girl name to the boy name and the boy name. to." The, and I showed him the printout of the document of the day before. And he, to his credit, was embarrassed by it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, I mean, I, I can't imagine how you wouldn't be embarrassed by it because it was so blatant. He said, oh, no, this is definitely at least 30% funnier. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, like, so a friend of mine who I won't name because I think this is something that she might one day write about, but she was submitting stuff to um 
to a, a weekly reactive news comedy show in the UK, which could be any number of things. Yes. And There's she, a lot of those here. Yeah. And she was submitting material to it every week and it never got through. And then she created an email address with a fake man's name and submitted material and it was picked up immediately. It got through immediately. And she emailed them just saying, just so you know, that's the same I'm the same person and like blah blah, blah. and they were like, Oh, okay. And she's ended up doing some more work for them, which is why I think she'll probably talk about this many years down the track. Mm. But like when she told me that, I just wish I was like at all surprised but I just wasn't at all I was like yeah and that's the thing like my dad always says that he often prefers seeing um like women do comedy because he figures especially you know at like big venues and stuff because he figures if they've got there they must be really good because it's harder for women so he's like I know I'm not going to get someone mediocre because they just wouldn't have got the gig yeah and I think there's a there's a slightly there's a slightly because there's this backlash now there is a an advantage now to being a woman particularly at our level which is sort of you know up and coming slightly established uh where you know, people know that they should have more women and they know that yeah. they, and there's not many of us who manage to boxes, claw our way up to this level. So mm. then it becomes much richer fields after a certain point. There's a kind of an hourglass effect where there's a lot at the bottom and then a very strong narrowing effect in the middle there, a weeding out of people and then up the top it's sort of fertile fields again. Mm. But I think because there's so much lip service paid to this project of diversifying your content producers and so on and so forth. There's a lot of noise being made about it and some of it is being carried through and then again each of those examples gets held up as a shining light and a shining beacon of their progress. Mm. I think it gives particularly struggling young white male comedians a false impression of how much progress has actually been made. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and um, th- this probably can be generalised out to most industries. It's that... You know, it's that classic study that they did where, you know, if you if the, if there are women speaking a certain amount, you know, 30% of the time, they will assume people, when asked to recall the conversation, will assume she spoke 60% of the time. Yeah. You, you notice it more because it is a difference. You you don't register the, the bland white wall of <laughs> male faces that is the norm and is continuing to be the norm and mm. continues to be the sort of... And because you as a young up-and-coming person don't see more more options for yourself, you see more competition for yourself, the world helping, ceasing to help white men feels like a real injury. Yeah. And they, people point, oh, well, look at all these white men who've made it successfully. That doesn't help me as a young white man trying to now fight against this wave of, <laughs> you know, now it's not eight of us on a bill anymore. It might be six of us on a bill and I might be one of the two that gets cut. I mean, I think straight white men should feel pretty good about the year they've just had. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I totally know what you mean. I also think that there's an area in which, like, we think when we do think that progress is being made, there is a, a tendency, and I've I've seen this in myself and I fight against it, to relax in a way that I don't – or, like, once I'm doing okay – I'm not as aware of it, obviously, as when I was like, you know, striving to get somewhere. Um, And I also feel like I've been incredibly guilty in the past of focusing on 
gender diversity over like racial diversity, for example, um, which I think is a product of me feeling like I was working, you know, I was working so hard to compete with men. I was working so, so hard. And it, I would say it was until I was like, you know, I, I started out doing comedy when I was like 17. And then it must be when I was like 25 that I was like, oh, you know, he's working a lot harder than me. Women of color. <laughs> and like, it's so embarrassing to me to look back at those early years and being like, yeah, women, let's all work together to be women and to do this. But actually, I wasn't. I was very focused on my own goals, I think. Yeah, I, but I do th- I think that is understandable because there is a sense of, of when you see how difficult it is to drag yourself up, mm. the prospect of dragging other people up with you seems incomprehensible. You're like, mm. I am on the verge of failure at all times. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to grab that drowning person, you know, times. like I'm not going to grab that drowning person and mm. see if I can pull them up because I'm – you know, I, I don't have any juice left to spare. And I think that's a, it's an understandable um, impression, but I also think it's a slightly false one. And this, like, this is something I've realised about myself is, is that the more people I try to help, the easier my life becomes. Yeah, definitely. And that, that but that's not something that you can feel at the time when you're really, really, really struggling, when you're not making money or you're, you're paying money to get to a gig and then they tell you that you're only getting a cut of the door and nobody showed up because they didn't do real publicity and <laughs> would you like a drink, you know. God, I think I just had like visceral flashbacks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, and, and, and then you're thinking, well, okay, cool, but how am I going to pay my rent? Yeah. That's, that's not the time when you think, and also I know I'm the only woman on the bill and maybe you should have more women on the bill, but also where are your black people and where are your... You know. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think I think um, you should cut your 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 younger self a little bit of slack. Yeah, I mean, I was yeah, I I sort of do, and on the other hand, I also think it's like worth. I always think there's no point in being like I'm thinking about this a lot at the moment because obviously, yeah, quite quite the year we just had. Yes, politically um, speaking. Politically speaking. Um, and I think if there's, I've, I think I've long described myself as like liberal. I think I, and you know, I've used terms, I'm sorry, liberal in the non-Australian sense. Yes, small L. Um, and like, um, you know, economically sort of socialist and all sorts of things. But I think the term that I've never particularly applied to myself, because I think it's maybe more of an American term, but I'm thinking about it a lot now, is progressive. Mm. because it feels as though what's happened in this last year in the UK and in America um, and then in basically in huge swathes of the world is um, a stemming of progress or an attempt to turn back progress. And I didn't realize how much one of the things I'm invested in is the world progressing the world and then it's not the thing I, I I don't think I'm like you know an economic progressive in the idea that I think uh so like quote-unquote progressive economic policies have led us to um a quite morally bankrupt sort of free market system but I think in terms of ideal like ideology and with people I'm 
I'm using the term progressive a lot more because I think it's an important term at a time when a huge section of the population wants to reverse progress. That's interesting. I think I un- I understand that I am wary of the term progressive. Uh, I understand where it comes from because it's a counterbalance to the feeling that the conservatives have that the world used to be better, now it's worse, we should go back mm. to a time when it was better. And that is an illusion and it's a lie <laughs> and also it cannot be done. We have technologies now that make the old world impossible. Yeah, Like that's just the fact from everything from the contraceptive pill to computers mean that the world will never be Alice don't you want to go back to a time (laughs) where neither of us could work and we could be legally raped (laughs) by our husbands that were chosen to us by chosen for us by a patriarch oh oh boy fingers crossed I die in childbirth (laughs) (laughs) at least then this will end yeah Um, (laughs) no I but I think that so I understand why the term progressive has come up but I think it has built into it a rhetoric that is dangerous for the movement and that's the progress is natural or there's a natural end towards which we're all moving Mm. and you guys need to catch up and that's a really like it's an understandable thing because you draw a line back through history and you see rights being gathered and you know advantages are being had and technology is building but it 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 can lead people to a sort of not lazy but an, an unwillingness to engage with your enemies because you think well, eventually they'll come round because it's obvious the next step. Yeah, and that the and also the idea that that the ne- that what is right should be obvious, intuitively, so that they you can just let them go into the world and if they if they see the real world they will come to the same conclusions as you. Mm. And I think that's sort of all sort of built into the term progressive, whereas the reality is if you send someone out on the internet to educate themselves about gender. they are just as likely to fall into a men's rights activist forum and you know there's plenty of really rational arguments in those places with very bad starting premises (laughs) but that won't necessarily trigger your red flags unless Mm. you have the education unless you have the community around you that will sort of guide you towards what you and I feel is the right answer so I think there is that like the danger is that is built into the progressive movement is a sense of impatience. Like yeah. fucking get on with it, guys. Let's. Haven't you seen how much think better things have gotten? And you know, I I agree with the project, but I'm I'm wary of of the name because I think names are powerful. Yeah, but I think I think one of the reasons that I'm quite keen to sort of use it is the same way. Like I remember people in America talking a lot when Obama was elected about how they were. Um, liberal wasn't like a dirty word anymore in America in a way that it had been for quite a while you didn't you didn't want to admit that you were liberal Mm. and I think conservative is a word that conservatives use with pride you often see it in like Twitter bios and stuff Mm. proud conservative or like conservative mum or like conservative who is trolling you you know one of those (laughs) and um I, I think that there's something about like there was a really good article on um the establishment which is like an amazing website and i'm obsessed with them mm-hmm. um and uh it was it was called something like um thank it was like thank god for identity politics and it was about it was like do you know what we had before identity politics just white men and people trying to turn back the clock on that stuff i think we can't expect people to automatically think that's 
right. I, I don't expect everyone to think that. Um, yeah, it's it's more the sense that it's that equality is natural. I think mm. equality is deeply unnatural. I think yeah, all that's of a bummer, his- right? Yeah, all of human history has shown us that we are, as a species, kind of biologically programmed to figure in us and them, and they are below us. That's the way that that without without technology, without education, without progress, um, you default to that. So it requires constant effort and constant fighting, and that's a depressing prospect. There's there we'll we always 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 have to keep your eyes out even in a microcosm in a safe space where are the hierarchies being built where's mm. the in-group and the out-group who's being judged for for not having the right outfit or the right hairstyle or the right language or the right you, you know it, it that I think a lot of you know I'm wary of of, of naturalness because mm. you and I are deeply unnatural where mm. you know women in our 30s who don't have children like that's unnatural uh yeah and i think i think i like i i don't i don't think arguing from it from a point of like oh this is the natural way of being i agree with you i don't think that's ever going to work but i think what's i've sort of realized is i've now prepared myself I think I spent the last year like girding my loins <laughs> for like a lifetime of having these arguments yeah. and having these conversations in a way that I think when I was coming out of high school already proudly calling myself a little feminist and like getting and I I was incredibly fortunate to get into a good university and I remember just being like yeah we're nearly done this is like we are getting there and then um you know, and then while I'm at uni, the Kevin 07 thing happens in Australia, which, ugh, what nostalgic times. <laughs> like, I was like, you know, this little baby and suddenly Kevin Rudd comes in and rolls, like, ends conservative rule in Australia. And I was like, ah, yes, let us look forward to 20 years of Labour government. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was so naive. You know, you're like 18. You're like, yeah, amazing. And then it it doesn't, it's just not. It's not been that way. And in fact, there's been a huge backlash to the rate of progression. Um, I absolutely do not buy into the argument that like progressives are like the reason it's like, oh, well, that's why Trump won and everything. And you're like, well, no, because if what you're saying is we all should have just sat down and not said anything and just like hoped that one day people would listen to us and give us rights, then it actually doesn't matter who's in power that's a huge section of the population that you've just fucked. Yeah, so you know, like, a couple of hundred or, or, years ago, the very liberal, open-minded, intelligent, generous, empathetic people would have treated their slaves well. Yeah, exactly. So it's like you never, you don't, I think what I've learned now is like, I'm never going to be able to settle. That's not yeah. going to be a thing that happens. And Which is why I think maybe in it, like maybe we should call it the rebel alliance. <laughs> you know, something like that to build in that idea of, a fight that it is mm. it's always going to be a fight and you know even if we achieve some of the things that we want to achieve then we have to watch ourselves and we have to guard ourselves for mm. the the same sort of human inclinations coming up i don't think white men being in power is a problem inherent to the race of whiteness or the biology of men i think it's because through various kind of geographies and historical things they got on top and once you're on top you stay on top. Really hold on to that yeah. for dear life. And so it doesn't 
I mean, it's not necessarily better if a woman is running Yahoo, mm. if she's running Yahoo as Yahoo has always been run. Like, it, there's n- there's still a massive problem with you know capitalism and exploitation and and so I think that I think we need to think of it as, yeah as you say as something that we're going to have to do for the rest of our lives. And that's like a weird. I think that's a weird thing to feel. I think I used to also like. So my parents and like I think particularly my mom, like my dad was the president of a union and so he was always very involved in like industrial action and everything. And my mom um, ran a, a refugee charity in Australia and so I grew up around parents who were very like politically active. And I think it just took me a little while to kind of get on their page of like being angry about things because I used to get sad about things and I would get frustrated but I I really believed that just like you know you just like wait and there's incremental change and there's this and there's that and it's weird that I've gone the other way as I've got older like I've become more radical like my 20s have radicalized me basically in a way that I think usually that's when you're supposed to kind of relax or whatever yeah Yeah, well I mean that there's it's a it's a trope which is that you know the people who are hippies in the 70s are running massive firms now. Yeah. You know, or they checked out. Whereas actually my mom said to me, you know, my parents are both baby boomers and um, they had me like very like late in life. And uh, my mom says that she's got more radical as she's got older. She's like, I've just stopped trying to appease people who I fundamentally realize I'm never going to appease and I, I can't appeal to and I think that's part of the thing as well like we, you know we started out talking about like losing losing a status as like a sexual object in the eyes of society and everything and I actually think part of that has been me gradually stripping away the ways in which I tried to please people who didn't deserve my consideration mm. And I think part of that is just, like, (laughs) general men. (laughs) Like, I don't – I think I spent so much of my life trying to appease people who would never in a million years give me the same consideration. And they just don't – I don't value those people in that way anymore. Like, you know, I've said to my partner a number of times, like, there are certain people who I have just sort of removed from my life which again, if you'd asked me when I was 17, if I could ever cut a friend out of my life, I'd be like, no, it's like cutting off your arm. You can't cut a friend out. But it turns out like there's people who are just bad for you. And that's not just, re- that's not just romantic relationships. That's friendships as well. And I've just sort of got rid of those people because I realized that they only wanted me in a certain form. And I didn't feel like that form was my best self. I think um, I know the person. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's a few, um, but yeah, like I, I, and I think I think it's weirdly all tied in, and that's the. I feel like I'm engaged currently in like an ongoing project of rebellion, which is like on a larger level and on a political scale, uh, and is also on a personal level of making myself the and do you know what I I do not want anyone to think that what I'm arguing is like that women can't be both sexual and powerful because I 
completely do not think that's true. And in fact, my sexuality and and everything has only become more strong and more powerful as this has gone on. It's that I feel like more and more I'm choosing the ways in which I express it rather than having that choice thrust on me by society. Yeah, so it's your sexuality rather than you performing somebody else's sexuality. Rather than people being like, oh, you're so... Like, I, I remember I, I, uh, I, people used to describe me as a bombshell. Mm. As it as like, and well, you did have that habit of exploding messily on things. Yeah, it's just awful. Just blowing out windows it's, and um, stuff. Really, apologies to all the buildings at my university. <laughs> um, so expensive. Um, but yeah, like it was like people would use words like that about me, and I just took that on board as like, well, I guess that's what I am. Um, and so I'm going to wear small, tight clothes and everything like that. And now it's like so much of what I find attractive about myself is like I have a whole wardrobe of like weird vintage dresses that are like really in your face and not necessarily the most like Cosmo would not consider them flattering on me. They do not highlight my quote unquote best assets and mm. like stuff like that and I but I love them and every time I put them on they make me feel like powerful and happy and uh like it's weird the stuff that I think as you get older you realize actually makes makes you happy rather than makes the people around you happy which gives you an illusion that you are then also happy yeah I think it's I mean the analogy that I draw is um it's like it's like food like actual sex is a dirty carrot like it's wholesome and it's nutritious <laughs> and it's not glamorous and it's messy. Uh, but the idea of sexiness is, you know, a woman licking a paddle pop on a car. <laughs> oh God, I want a paddle pop so bad now. <laughs> you know, but this, this is like, there is no, and I've, I've, I'm going to say this on stage at some point, so apologies if you're going to see Empire. Uh, it'll probably be in that. But I think I've been thinking about this, which is that like there is no one sexier than the people in a Christian youth conference. <laughs> because they do. Talk me through it. Because they perform sexiness as mm. it is meant to be. They have perfectly coiffed hair. They have perfect skin. They have perfect lips. Their eyelashes are done. They they have push-up bras. They ha- their bodies are p- perfected. Mm. They are gleaming and... and and, and it's because they have to, I mean, the joke I make is that they, they have to be so sexy that you have to want to fuck them all the way through marriage. Yeah. <laughs> like, then you have to kind of be willing to clear that hurdle to get into those pants. Mm. But it also betrays a real lack of understanding of what sex is. Yeah. What the actual intimate process of being with somebody in your bodies. Well, there's a strong chance that hair's going to get messed up just for starters. Yeah, ex- exactly. You know, <laughs> you can't smell like fake tan yeah. in in that world, in the world of actually connecting with another human being, rather than just performing your roles. I okay, I just remembered that my ex used because I used to get fake tans because of course I did, and uh, my ex used to always complain about the smell when I would, and but I remember being like, no, this is good because I'm going to look so good but like who was I looking good for it smelled so bad and then then, then you've got like you know not not just women bouncing back with their baby bodies etc etc but women who are actually pregnant Mm. wearing heels 
Oh or, my god! You know I, what I mean? I that? saw the most bummer hashtag on Instagram. Like you're already the other day. pregnant. What are you trying to do? The, on Instagram the other day, it was like because the thing is, I firmly believe in like dressing and expressing yourself in a way that makes you feel good and like I like I do a lot of yoga for example so like my thighs and butt are like so filled with muscles that they're they're I mean my butt particularly is like oddly large with muscles (laughs) um and like I really like and so it looks like I well I do I just have like a big butt now um but like I dress in ways that I'm like, oh, I can see my <laughs> nice ginormous butt, and I'm really happy with that. But that doesn't mean that I'm dressing in ways that like other people would find appealing. Mm. But um, I saw a thing on Instagram that was a hashtag was um hashtag pregnant uh pregnant not fat, which was like women oh. like putting up photos of themselves and hashtagging it pregnant not fat, just in case anyone thought that they'd committed the cardinal sin of like putting on weight. And I just was like building a human being. How dare. And I was like, man, that factories are messy, man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's just like, it just bummed me out so much. And I, I sent it to a friend. I was like, look, I know there's like way more important stuff going on in the world now, but this just makes me so sad. Cause like, I mean, I had an eating, an eating disorder as a teenager, which I think is all tied into the whole developing early sex object thing. Yeah. Can um, I please control this? Yeah, please. Um, so I had an eating disorder and it was like, it was pretty bad and I was very sick for a while. And um, and then I think, you know, in definitely like when I got to uni, I was sort of coming out of it. But it was there was a lot of backsliding, and then like I had a very bad relationship after that, and it, I went right back into it, and and so I think I've had the thing is with like when women say things like hashtag pregnant not fat, it doesn't like make me angry. It makes me really sad because being able to it's not even just being like body positive in the sense of like. Um, well, I feel fantastic in my body and I think it's fine that I've put weight on a blah, blah. It's not even that. It's just acknowledging that the way my body looks does isn't the whole of me and doesn't define me and actually isn't even the most important thing about me. Yeah. Like knowing that has really made me a lot happier than I've ever been before. And so when women do stuff like that, it's, I'm not like, you idiots. I'm just like, you are probably such an intelligent and interesting woman and it really bums me out that your priority is making sure the world knows that you've not put weight on because you've got a lot else going on now. See, I remember that Dustin Hoffman clip that went out about him talking about dressing up as Tootsie. Yeah. He cross-dresses in that movie and he... They did the makeup for him and they said, okay, so we can make you look like a woman. It can be done. And he looked at himself in the mirror and he said, okay, now make me a beautiful woman. And they were like, oh, no, that's just, that's how you look. That's as good as it gets. Mm. And he cried because he suddenly realized how many, and in the speech when he's talking about it, on this interview where he's talking about it, he tears up again with the profoundness of the realization that he had in that moment that he'd overlooked so many interesting women. Mm in his life and probably some boring ones as well, but just (laughs) by virtue of judging them by their looks, whether he was going to be interested in them. I mean, that, that's an interesting phrase. I'm interested in you. What, what, what are you interested in? Yeah. Um, but that, and I was so, I was moved by that and I spoke to my brother about it and I was like, that's a, it's a really incredible thing. And my brother was like, 
No, it's not. He's bullshit self-indulgent. How did he get to the age of 30-something, <laughs> never having recognised it's, it's this? Uh, and he was really scornful and angry and, you know, it's, he was being a better feminist than me, maybe, but I, I think, you know, having a, a twin sister might have given him an insight that I didn't have. I was so pleased that Dustin Hoffman had had this epiphany and, you know, yeah. hopeful that other people could have similar epiphanies, but that it took... It took him thinking un- the unthinkable, which was that he could be or could have been An a woman, woman. <laughs> yeah. or that a woman could have the same feelings as him and that that came as an epiphany to him. I mean, it is truly remarkable how little we ask men to empathise. <laughs> like, it is genuinely incredible. Like, the, I think now, like, you know, I have, I have a male partner and he is the kindest man I've ever met and I think fundamentally that's why I because I'd I genuinely got to a point in my life where I was almost exclusively attracted to women and I think part of that was I was just like I've always been attracted to women well to a variety of genders and I had got to the point where I was like men are just ultimately we don't have we can't connect in a way that feels rewarding to me so I was sort of dating women more and then um yeah I I got together with this guy and he's just he's incredibly kind and empathetic and he is not what anyone would term like traditionally masculine and he's not got he's so he's so sweet and nurturing and I was just like, wow, it really doesn't have to fall down on gender. Like, on, it doesn't have to. It does a lot of the time. But, you know, he is someone who chooses to empathize with people and chooses to be interested in the world outside of his own experience. And that's why he's kind. Like, we both, we were both doing, um, like, charity uh, shifts over Christmas. You do. There's a thing called Crisis at Christmas here where... And they they run um, centers for the week over Christmas and you go in and um, work with people who are homeless or sleeping rough or whatever. And we were both doing it. And um, I remember him saying after one shift in which like it it had been a really, really hard shift and we were doing night shifts as well. So often you'd be up all night. So he was in quite a like rough state at like seven in the morning when he got home. Um, and I remember him saying like, oh, it was really, really hard. It was really hard. And I was like, look, you can try to rearrange your shifts if you want stuff. And he was like, what? No. He's like, it's supposed to be hard. And I just remember thinking, I am so used to men not wanting to do hard things (laughs) that like when he said it's supposed to be hard, I just felt this like pang of gratitude to the fact that he's the person that I'm with. Yeah. Um, now, uh, we have to wrap up, uh, but is it you whose father made them a lamb roast when you got your first period? Yes. <laughs> that is just one of, the, it's one of the nicest things I've ever heard. And I would oh like, if, you, if you're out there and have a daughter, please do that. If you're not vegetarian, because oh like a spinach something if you're vegetarian. But Yeah, make a spinach dog. It's like the most beautiful <laughs> coming of age ritual. Yeah, my dad, basically I told my mom. So when it happened, it was like a real shock. 
um, uh, as I think it is for a lot of women. Um, I think women don't talk enough about the fact that you don't they really know when it's coming. And then even if you even if you know it exists, when it does happen, it's like, holy shit, it doesn't look like blue dye being poured onto tampons. Um, yeah, so I got it and I walked out and I was like, mama, I think I've got my period. And I was 12 and just as it happened, the doorbell rang and we had friends coming to stay. And my mom was like, um, go back into the bathroom. I'll be with you in a minute. And had to come and get our friends and like move them in and stuff. And I was just like sitting on the loo being like, well, if I don't have my period, I'm dying. So I really hope she comes back soon. But then, um, yeah, we sort of, you know, sort stuff out. And then our friends went out and um, she told my dad. And I would have told him anyway, but she told him before me. And then he came home and he was like, oh, we're having a special dinner. And it genuinely didn't occur to me that that was why mm-hmm. until we sat down. And, yeah, he'd roasted a leg of lamb. And it was me and my brothers and my mom. And he'd, like, done lots of, like, broccoli and vegetables and stuff <laughs> as well. Because he said, you know, you're going to want to keep your eye on <laughs> And, but yeah, he said, uh, now I think we should all acknowledge that it's been a very important day for Bridie. And my brothers were like, oh, all right. Um and yeah and then they all did a little toast to me um and my brother my dad let me have first uh choice of the lamb first cut of the lamb um and yeah it was a very lovely cat has just walked in hello um Um, and it was like a very nice experience um turns out that i have severe endometriosis so from that point on periods were an absolute hellscape and and continue to be but at the time i was like wow periods are great." great I get half an animal every time I've got my period. I mean, the only similar experience I have was I took a the manliest man I know. I took him to a raw vegan restaurant, mm-hmm. and he was sort of bemused by it. And then I live <laughs> tweeted everything he said, and it was hilarious. Um, but I, one of the things that he said was, "Why do why do I mean you feel like you've been eating a lot, but then you don't feel full? Why do people do this?" And I said, "Well, it's sort of a, a thing. A lot of women prefer to feel light after they've eaten. They don't necessarily want to feel laden down with food." And he said, but don't women need more nutrition? <laughs> and I was like, why? And he's like, because they bleed all the time. <laughs> and I was like, that's simultaneously. No, I'm just going to say that's really sweet. Like it was constant such a bleeding. <laughs> just that, you know, you, you could suddenly start bleeding. So you need higher levels of nutrition. That is genuinely adorable. Yeah. Um, I'm going to totally encourage that thinking and if like if a guy's ever like um, can I finish this I'll be like I'm sorry I'm constantly bleeding <laughs> could start bleeding at any minute <laughs> that's another thing that annoys me about it is you're not bleeding you're changing the wallpaper yeah you're just you're just doing some interior redecoration that cat is uh, insane yeah, it um, just came in to rub on my hand and then it bit me. Yeah, that that she'll do that. I like your moxie cat. <laughs> She's, I, I think she came from a, a bad place. Mm. So she does just occasionally. Yeah, bad a bit. Uh, Same kitten. Same kitten. Don't, don't, don't do the tummy. She's offering her tummy. It's a mistake. It's a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> she wants you to pat it, but then she doesn't want you to have patted it. Yeah. I have a, a cat, like my cat now is the only cat I've ever had who loves having her tummy patted. Mm. Other cats pretend they do, but it's always a ruse. But so. Peggy, she just lies there like, yes, keep patting it. I think she might be dumb. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. That's all right. That's all right. We'll meet and the birds are safer. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you online? Um, on Twitter or Instagram, both of them are at BrideyLK, B-R-Y-D-I-E-L-K. Um, uh, if you have Cartoon Network, you should watch The Amazing World of Gumball, which is a show I'm working on. 
um, what else am I working? Oh, I, I write for a bunch of places. So um, SBS Comedy, um, The Guardian sometimes. Uh, who else do I write for? BuzzFeed. Um, so any of those places. Look her up. It's an unusual name. Bridie Lee Kennedy. Also, Thank if you, you Google me, the first thing that comes up is Bridie Lee Kennedy boyfriend for a variety of really dumb reasons. It's not <laughs> because I'm constantly talking about a boyfriend. <laughs> Just so you know. All right, I will I'll do that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tomorrow or yet today We'll try our 